so ready. Okay. Welcome back to Midwretched, friends. Hello and welcome. We're glad you're here. And we're glad that we're here. And we're glad life is here. Yes. <laughs> we are grateful for life, <laughs> I guess. Sometimes you have like a week where you just have to be like, hmm, I guess I'm alive and that's great. And that's the best you know? we're going to get today. Yeah. Sometimes that's just the way it is. Yeah. I was thinking about you this morning. Why? You're going to laugh at me, but that's okay because I have taken an extra step on being crazy plant girl. Yes. I was hand pollinating my pumpkins. (laughs) (laughs) That makes me so happy. (laughs) I was really worried they weren't going to get pollinated. (laughs) I am having the same issue with my cucumbers. I'm willing to bet that the same process will work. I just took an old makeup brush. And mm-hmm. I found the boy flowers and the girl flowers. And, you know, I just set the scene, lit some candles, and, you know. <laughs> and made the magic happen. Made the magic happen. <laughs> I love that. That's amazing. Yeah. My cucumbers just will not, they won't blossom. They won't, well, they won't uh, flower. There's no flowers. The plants are insane. Like, they're taking over my entire garden bed. Yeah. But they have no flowers on them, and I don't know what to do. It's a good summer for gardening in the Midwest so far. I'll say that. Like, my plants are popping. I don't know what's wrong with my cucumbers. They're just upset. We, I don't know. My plants are popping. I had to order new trellising, and Ooh. it is not going to get here for another two weeks, and I don't know if my plants can handle another two-week wait. Aww. They're sprawling. Yeah, your garden is really out of control and in such a great way. Like, it's just so nice. It is so nice. I just, I hope I get, it ends up, everything ends up ripening and whatnot, so. Yeah, I think it will. Mm -hmm. I think it will. We had a tornado here the other day. (gasps) Last night, two nights ago. We had four. You did too. Oh my gosh. Yeah. We just had the one stinky, stupid little one. Oh no, we had four. And you know, I'm a tornado nerd. Mm -hmm. I love them. Listeners, let me tell you this story. When I was probably maybe 12, sisters, correct me on this one, because I know you remember mm. this. We had, there was like a tornado. We used to get tornadoes in Dayton all the time. Yeah. Shout out to Xenia, Tornado Alley. Mm-hmm. And so we had a tornado like warning go off and it like, it happened so often we didn't even care at that point. So my dad was like out on the deck barbecuing. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> and he's like, okay, well, you guys just go down in the basement. I'm going to finish dinner. <laughs> good lord (laughs) and so like we go down in the basement whatever and he like brings the stuff inside and it hits part of our neighbor's tree or like lightning does or something and it brings down our neighbor's tree onto our roof oh i remember yeah hearing about this yeah it was fun and good gracious so i will happily stand on my deck and just watch tornadoes no i am terrified i do not like storms at all so i was like I, I woke up and i heard the siren i thought i did but it was really quiet for some reason so i was just like laying in bed like trying to deduce if i had heard the siren or not mm-hmm. and murder husband is like just snoozing away like a little <laughs> baby animal my mom was sleeping in the living room i didn't know that she was also doing the same thing mm-hmm. and my toddler is just out cold like, like i have to wake up everybody but i didn't because i wasn't sure if i heard the sirens or not oh turned out i had okay but it wasn't really near us so no harm no foul so we had a bunch i was like just dozing off to sleep i was so tired i was just dozing off to sleep and i heard it and i was like eh. 
and I just kept dozing off to sleep. And my partner runs in. He's like, we need to go to the crawl space right now. Because we have a big ass Gacy level crawl space. It's crazy. And I was like, we don't need to go to a crawl space. We just need to be quiet and let me go to sleep. (laughs) (laughs) But he made me sit in the crawl space at least until the siren stopped, which was like 30 minutes. Good man. Good man. And then I crawled onto the basement mattress and slept there until he said I could go to bed. I love the basement mattress. It's so comfortable. I would have just stayed there all night. Yeah. In fact, I want to come back. Come on back to my basement mattress. Nightly rates. <laughs> uh, okay. <laughs> I'm not paying anything. Okay, you don't. Um, let's, how do I find a segue into your case today? You are uh, taking me home again, aren't you? I am, and I have a notification before I take you home. Okay. In my current home... Chicago, we all know Chicago experiences very, very high rates of violence over the summer. Mm-hmm. This summer has been absolutely no exception. So we've had a lot of shootings, a lot of attacks. And one murder in particular, there is currently a manhunt for. So I am going to send oh. our mid-wretcheders some information. They are looking for the killer. Um, there was a double murder that happened... Oh, God, what day it was? I want to say it was Sunday at the Puerto Rican Day Parade. Sunday the what? Because this episode's going to air... The 20th. Okay. Um, It happened the day of the Puerto Rican Day Parade uh, near Humboldt Park. The victims were Giovanni Arzuega and Yasmin Perez. Mm -hmm. Um, I will post the article on our socials that has more information about who they're looking for. But if you guys have any tips... The Chicago police is currently looking for them. Lori Lightfoot is saying that they will find this person. It was a particularly brutal murder mm. that happened in broad daylight. So, Wow, how horrible. Yeah. Yeah, keep an eye out, people. And if you know anything, please funnel those tips to the appropriate authorities. And just in general, Chicagoans, like, take care of yourself. Yeah, definitely. I care about you a lot. Yeah, that's... Uh, like a cultural trauma, you know? So that's what's going on in my home. Let me take you back to yours. Mm, Okay. Okay. So as I mentioned last time, we are going back to Detroit tonight. Yeah. Today, whenever you're listening to this. I was just there last weekend. Oh, yeah. How is it doing? It's still there, you know. It's uh, Every time I go back home, I feel like it's changed a lot. But I ended up on this, like, mid-wretched tour accidentally because the exit that it uh, pooped me off of to go to my brother's house was the John Norman Collins exit. Oh, jeez. And then we went to a restaurant with a friend. And as I was coming back, I realized it was taking me on the John Eric Armstrong route. Mm -hmm. So I was like, oh, my gosh, accidentally, you know, (laughs) here I am just amid all of this ter- terrible stuff by the way guys those are not the actual names of those exits <laughs> no yeah it's not like you're on 94 and it's like exit here to see john norman collins no but it basically feels like that if you're me yeah so yeah. <laughs> did you happen to go visit the palmer park neighborhood i uh i know palmer park very well i did not this last weekend but i know it very well ah, you want to tell us a little bit about palmer park because that's where we're going today Really? Yeah. Okay, that's interesting. So (laughs) um, (laughs) it's interesting to be in Palmer Park. So uh, Palmer Park is an interesting place because it is gorgeous. Mm -hmm. Are we talking about like the park itself or like the 
uh, kind of neighborhood associated with the neighborhood associated with it. Okay, so I would say like Palmer Park is a huge park for like an inner city park. It's reminiscent of old Detroit wealth. There's like a beautiful golf course, stuff like that. And I think there's a a really pretty lake in there. So it's kind of like symbolic of Detroit's old wealth, Mm -hmm. I would say. But the neighborhood around it has gotten to be, you know, pretty tough. So like, I know that the golf course like used to be famous. It was like where Detroit's like, you know, hippest and hottest were (laughs) golfing. Like all of the like Motown guys were like out there golfing and stuff. But now like... It's situated right by our alma mater mm-hmm. and just north of Highland Park, which is a pretty rough area. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of like this gorgeous, like wooded oasis, but otherwise a pretty dicey spot in the city, neighborhood wise, as far as crime. And um, there's a lot of poverty kind of around the park. Yeah. And the park itself is pretty well known for being a spot where um, bad things happen. Mm-hmm. Like this case. Yep. Ah, okay. Yeah. A lot of, I mean, most, for the most part, like what I would hear about it is a lot of drugs, stuff like that, like the kind of crimes, you know, like quote unquote crimes that don't really have an impact outside of the people directly involved in them, Mm -hmm. you know, but it was, it's definitely one of the drugs parks. You know what I mean? It's a lot of drugs. It's a lot of sex work too, which is something that we're Mm -hmm. going to talk a bit about today. So gotcha. Okay. That was probably really rambly, but (laughs) I'll edit it all together so seamlessly. Yeah. Make it sound nice. Make it sound good. So this is actually a case, the case that we're going to be talking about today was a little bit hard for me to know where to start. For some background, so I've had this case on my radar basically since we started this podcast. I heard about it. I put it in my little list in my phone. I've been checking in on it. But as I mentioned last week's outro, it's been in kind of legal limbo and is still Mm. an ongoing case, partially just because of how long cases take to go to trial and partially because of pandemic. Yeah. This case picked up a lot of traction early on. And I guess the reason why I wanted to talk about it now is because I really don't want it to drop off everybody's radar while Mm. it's kind of in legal limbo. Yeah, that's fair. So... When I first started to research it, a lot popped up and I was like, oh, I'm so glad there's this is so exciting. There's so much information on this case. Hmm. And then it quickly realized that it is just the same information cited over and over and over. Yeah, I hate when that happens. You get so excited. Yeah, It's like one article from the Metro Times gets rewritten basically in Out Magazine and The Advocate and Human Rights Watch Mm -hmm. and... And yeah, and so I'm not getting too much information. Yeah. So I put together as much as I could. I watched the entire pre-trial hearings. Did you really? Good for you. they were on YouTube. Isn't it interesting? It's so interesting to watch that stuff. Like some of it is very boring and it's really tempting to skip through. But then you skip all the juicy details and all of like the very interesting evidentiary details. You don't want to skip that stuff. Which I will say we don't have everything on because it was just a pre-trial hearing, meaning that they were just trying to see, do you have enough evidence to take it to Mm. an official hearing? Mm -hmm. Spoilers, they do, and that's why we're talking about it today. So, yes, we get to talk about a subject that we have not really gotten to dig into yet today, Mm -hmm. and that is the systemic murder of trans and non-binary folks in the U.S., Oh, yes. A huge, 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 huge problem Mm -hmm. that is in many ways kind of invisible. 
I'm going to rattle off some stats to you guys and then talk about our case. But I want these stats just to point out how important that this is to talk about. Yeah. So already in 2021, there have been at least 28 trans and non-binary folks murdered in the U.S. Wow. And we're only halfway through. Yeah. Each year, that number has been climbing slowly. In 2020, there were 44. According to the National Crime Victimization Survey, trans folks are about four times as likely as cis folks to experience physical violence. And that includes everything from property violence, sexual violence, to homicide. So that whole range of experiences. The National Center for Transgender Equality cites one in 10 trans folks have been physically attacked just in the last year. Wow. With black trans women having the absolute highest rates of physical attacks. Yeah. And another important stat that is not as not as publicized as that one, but I think equally enlightening is that nearly half or 47 percent of black trans folks that responded to the survey by the Center for Transgender Equality report experiencing unequal or discriminatory treatment either in the home in the workplace through official Mm. government systems like housing Mm -hmm. unemployment things like that and i cite that because i think it's important for us to understand all of the systemic factors that lead to the situations that we see yeah our victim that we're going to talk to talk about today kelly stowe was an absolute amazing advocate and she really sought to bring attention to these factors. She herself struggled finding equal employment, equal education, and in her work to support herself and her family, she was a sex worker. And mm-hmm. even then, she would kind of do interviews and say, hey, nobody ever asked me how I ended up here or why I'm doing this. Maybe you guys should shed some light on that. Ooh, I love that. <laughs> <laughs> I I, love I really love Kelly. Um, I know this episode is going to come out after um, Pride Month, but I really feel like she just kind of epitomizes the spirit of Stonewall. Yeah. Okay, tell me more. I could go on and on about statistics. Well, tell me more about Kelly. All right. So Murder Beagle was digging at the door, so I opened it. He showed me his chunola, like proudly. <laughs> And then trotted down the stairs. That's cute. (laughs) So we're talking about statistics. And so today we're going to talk a little bit about the people, one of the people behind those statistics. Her name was Kelly Stowe. Kelly was assigned male at birth, born to Jessica Williams Stowe. We love Jessica. We're going to talk about her later. She is an awesome, awesome person too. Kelly grew up in Detroit. She attended McKenzie High School, which has since closed, sadly. What high school in Detroit hasn't closed? <laughs> Isn't that so sad? Because I was, like, looking it up, and I was, I, always, I don't know. I'm, I'm a nerd now. I always like to see, like, okay, who graduated from this school? Anybody cool? Yeah. No, yeah, mine's an abandoned building now, too. Yeah, so. this one is, too. That's, mm-hmm. yeah. It closed in 2007 and has been, oh, it's not an abandoned building. It was demolished. Ah, uh, okay. Ugh. Oddly, though, before it was demolished, there were a lot of NFL players that went to this school. Hmm. I don't know what McKenzie High School had going on there, but just on their Wikipedia page, like a quick glance is like six or seven NFL players. Wow. 
Interesting. That's a lot, right? Yeah, that is a lot. And so I think it says something that Kelly, who presented and lived as male through her adolescence and early adulthood, was also a successful football player there. Wow. Yeah, right? Hmm. So I was like, you are competing like with the best of the best. Yeah. She even went on to earn a scholarship to North Dakota University to play football. Good for her. Mm -hmm. That's awesome. She had a relatively successful career through college, but decided not to continue playing. I could not tell if she graduated college because I know that she then went on to move to Chicago to attend the International Academy of Design and Technology. So she spent a little bit of time in Chicago in my home of homes. Mm-hmm. Also, the International Academy of Design and Technology has also sadly since been closed. Yeah, that's too bad. Lots of school closures. But while she was there, she started to study design. She wanted to be a fashion designer. Mm-hmm. And this is also where she began to really ingrain herself into the queer community and start to explore identities a little bit more. She began attending and eventually performing in drag shows. So this is where she started to just kind of really start to explore her identity as a performer and eventually as a trans woman. And it seemed like it was really awesome for her. She took on the stage name Kiana Mattel. Cute. Is this a relation to Trixie Mattel? I looked so hard and I couldn't find it. But if anybody knows, because Trixie Mattel is from uh, Wisconsin. Yeah. So I couldn't find the connection. But if it's out there, somebody please let us know. Yeah, we want to know. Yeah. (laughs) That's awesome. She was apparently an amazing performer. I'm Googling. Her Facebook is still up, and there's a couple of flyers for shows that she would put on and things like that. A couple of her performances and walks in Detroit, which we'll get to in a bit. Beautiful. I also mentioned her stage name, Kiana Mattel, because she held on to that for a while, and there's actually, in some interviews... That we'll talk about. She is also cited under the name Kiana Mattel. So Mm. if you're wanting to look up some of her advocacy work, you can look under that name as well. Gotcha. So she eventually transitioned to female, presenting as female and living as female, going by the name Kelly Stowe, as opposed to her given name by her parents. I am unsure if it was while she was in Chicago or when she later moved back to Detroit. I just couldn't find a good timeline on that. Gotcha. But it feels like Kelly really found herself in Detroit and really kind of began to live her authentic life. Everybody that knew her from back then said she was very happy. She loved everybody. She was a great mentor to other Mm. students and just other people in the community. So that's awesome. Yeah. Are you finding what you're looking for? Yeah. She's beautiful. She's beautiful. Yeah. Really beautiful. And you can visit her Facebook. It still has, like, um, kind of messages to her and all of that. Yeah, really beautiful. Mm-hmm. So she did eventually, like I said, move back to Detroit and moved in with her mother, Jessica. Who, like I said, sounds like a gem. She was so mm-hmm. loving, really proud of her daughter. I'll share this one quote from her mother. This is from interviews from after her murder. Just to kind of show, like, the relationship that they had. the Kind of the love and the pride that she had. This is a quote from Jessica, like I said. She was educated. She was God-filled. She loved church. She loved others. As a human being in the United States of America, you have the right to be who you want to be. You shouldn't be shamed or bullied or persecuted for the choice you make. Amen. It just seemed like her mom, I mean, 
I'm sure transitions and changes and adjustments happen, but her mom loved her and accepted her, and that's amazing. That's a beautiful thing. So like I said, Kelly's living in Detroit. She's trying to become a designer, which is not an easy line of work to get into. Mm Mm-mm. Looking at kind of her education history, it seemed like she worked her ass off. Yeah. But, like, two of her schools shut down, and... Yeah. That's hard. It is hard. So, a lot of this timeline I'm kind of scrapping together from a bunch of short notes and probably some assumptions on my part. Mm. But it seemed like she was really dedicated and hardworking by what everybody said about her. That while she was kind of pursuing her dream and kind of working on the side trying to become a designer, she still needed to make money and she went into sex work to bring in income. Gotcha. She was also a regular at the Detroit clubs in the ballroom scene. Yes. For anyone unfamiliar with the history of ballrooms in the queer community, can we take a little aside here and give a good quick rundown? Do it. It's something that I really admire and really I think it's amazing. The ballroom scene is something that I think is coming into pop culture a little bit more than it has in the past because of shows like Drag Race and Pose. Mm. But if you want to learn more about it, you can also check out Paris is Burning or Vogue in Detroit. Yes. The underground ballroom culture goes back over a century. It's kind of always been a staple to the LGBTQ community Mm -hmm. of folks coming together to express themselves and create community, to dance, to live their life, to live their authenticity and their identity. Like I said, it came around. It's been over a century. Um, People would come. They would dress in drag, both drag queens and drag kings. Many mm. people would create personas as a form of self-expression at a time when that was completely illegal. Yeah. That they would just come together to be themselves and have these dances. And for the record, black trans folks have always led the way in the ballroom scene. Absolutely. Yeah. It's huge. It's huge. The whole spectrum of identities have been welcome in this in these spaces. And basically kind of what it is, is it's a... It's a place to come together and to dance. There's varying levels of formalities and competitions and dance-offs and fashion and everything like that. Everything that you see on Drag Race, from category is to reading to all of that stuff, comes directly from ballrooms. Yeah, I love that. And it's... I don't know. I'm sure people have differing feelings about that becoming so mainstream, but... Yeah, and I'm sure it's just very complicated. <laughs> I won't go into the politics of it. I'm just going to describe it. Yeah, that's that's a wise choice. Thank you. A wise choice. <laughs> um, so although there were like walk-offs and competitions in various categories, so basically different presentations and different fashion, it all came from a space to welcome and try on different identities to explore yourself and to find acceptance and to have fun and to let mm-hmm. go and... Yeah, be who you are in a safe space. I find this amazing that you can find such a group of acceptance when from the outside world you face so much rejection. Yeah, absolutely. I just find that cool. Yeah, it is cool. And, you know, you got to preserve those spaces. Mm -hmm. And Kiana Mattel not only preserved it, she was a star. Yeah. If you look her up. You'll see flyers and things like that for the House of Ebony. Mm. So I grabbed some of these from her Facebook group. That's awesome. <laughs> so one of the things about that would you would see is like these different houses of, you know, yeah, families yeah. and things like that. So like I said, do your research, learn more. It's fun. 
Mm-hmm. Kelly, like I said, is also a sex worker and a great advocate in the community. Where she did her sex work was in the Palmer Park area, which we were talking about before. Got it. Okay. Around the McNichols and Brush Street. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Reaction? I mean, just a tough, I mean, it's a tough spot. It's such a tough spot. And it's so sad because it's such like a kind of a hallmark, like I said, of like old Mm -hmm. Detroit, Mm -hmm. you know, and it's like you want it to be what it should be. And it's just, it's just not. But that's also like, if I'm thinking about it, right, I'm pulling up a map. Yeah. It's right by the golf course. Yeah, it's right by the golf course, certainly walking distance. And now now that area is fairly built up. Mm-hmm. And I know this case being like pretty contemporary. We're in 2019. It's probably, well, I know for a fact it's a friendlier place now mm-hmm. than it was when I was growing up. But I certainly, I know for myself that driving down McNichols once I hit Pontchartrain, uh, it just changes. It definitely is a rough area. Yeah. Yeah. It's just, it's tough out there. It's really tough. It's one of the oldest parts of the city. Yeah. But it's it's just tough out there. Yeah. We've talked a lot before about kind of like the blight in Detroit. And we've talked differently at various different times about how the economy in these Rust Belt cities has been impacted. So if you want to hear our political opinions on that, <laughs> just flash back through any episode. <laughs> Any episode that takes place in Detroit, just go ahead and find that. Or Cleveland. We talked quite a bit about it in the Cleveland Strangler Oh, episode. boy, did we. we. Did. Yeah. Probably the most in that episode, actually. I can't help it. <laughs> I know. I know. I only didn't talk about it more here because we already have. Because we've done it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but all that to say, it it is a rough area. Detroit is still in an economic recovery. And I, I will emphasize that it is in an economic mm-hmm. recovery. We love our Detroiters. But mm-hmm. sex work is always going to be around. And sex work in and of itself, we support. But we're going to talk about kind of how it can be dangerous, especially yeah. with certain populations, and what makes it dangerous particularly. Mm-hmm. Because Kelly had a lot to say about that. Good for Kelly. Yeah. Okay. In particular, this was an area where there was a lot of sex work, particularly mm-hmm. a lot of trans sex workers. Mm-hmm. And part of the reason for this is simply protection in numbers, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Given the stats that we went over, we have to acknowledge that trans sex work is incredibly dangerous. Yeah. So these girls would protect each other and they look out for each other and that's all you can do, right? Yeah, totally. And this really came to the forefront in the Detroit community with the 2015 murder of Amber Monroe. Yeah. Do you remember this one at all? Uh, a little. The, you, mean... This was, you had moved out by then. I left in 2018, so I think Amber Monroe was another person that was, like, pretty, if I'm thinking about the right case, like, another really well-known person in the community, Mm -hmm. and I know that it took a lot of push to get adequate reporting about that case, particularly, like, the Detroit News, which usually does a pretty good job by and large, I think, blew it on that case. And that's what I remember the most about it. And that's what really kind of was a big stepping stone in this case was accurate reporting on trans Mm -hmm. victims. Yeah. Interestingly, though, it was the same area, McNichols and Woodward, as Palmer Park. So it's very much 
the same little locus. It was the exact same area. Amber was mm-hmm. a young 20-year-old woman. She worked with Kelly. She was friends with Kelly. Mm. She was the fifth trans woman murdered between 2014 and 2015 in that area alone. Wow. Yeah. She was murdered around 5 a.m. on a Saturday morning in August 2015 with Mm. a single gunshot wound. Sadly, there aren't too many other details because the reporting was terrible about her murder. Really kind of what came out of it was, please talk fairly about us, was kind of the legacy that she was able to leave. Like you had mentioned, very often when um, trans women were murdered, their biological names would be used, Mm. incorrect (laughs) pronouns would be used. And what that meant was not only offense to the victim, but that family and friends didn't know when their people disappeared. Yeah, yeah. It's not only incredibly disrespectful and insulting, it is also just poor dissemination of information. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. I'm sorry, I said that she was the fifth woman in that area to be murdered. She was the fourth. Mm. But nevertheless, people were pissed and they were starting to make noise. Yeah, totally. And Kelly was one of the people making noise. Good. She and her friends who had all worked around that area, they wanted the public to know what they were dealing with. Mm -hmm. And The Guardian actually did a few really good pieces interviewing members of the trans community and sex work community about why those two communities were so connected, particularly in cities like Detroit. Mm -hmm. I'm going to talk about one particular article because Kelly was interviewed in it at length, again, under the name Kiana Mattel. Several other locals were interviewed in the article explores literally everything from housing laws to the inability of trans folks to find shelter in homeless shelters. Mm. workplace and employment discrimination lack of health care police discrimination like it's a good article i will link it yeah <laughs> good please do but kelly again going by kiana was interviewed by the guardian for that article and she said this the police are unaware with our struggles so they have no sympathy for us nobody ever asks what happened to that person to get there you know these girls are out there you know they ain't going nowhere Why not build a relationship with them? Talking about police Mm. relationships. So that they can get comfortable with you. Saying, this man hurt me without them laughing or saying, that's what the fuck you get. Yeah. Unless you're in the middle of the street, dead, bleeding, you can flag down a police officer and Mm. they'll just ride past you like you never flagged them down. Mm. She is in this article and other places just really begging for police officers to take their safety seriously yeah and what i gathered from that is that she is seeking to build relationships with the police Mm -hmm. she's seeking a trusted relationship in order to build safety in her community in a way that she had never experienced it yeah so although there was a short amount of national attention on the Amber monroe murder pressure would soon fade and things would kind of go right back to normal and that trust and protection that Kelly sought would not be there when she needed it. Yeah. So now we're going to jump to early morning of December 17th, 2018. Okay. Kelly is working in her typical area near McNichols and Brush Street around 6 a.m. When 46-year-old Albert Weathers pulls up. 
Weathers is a married father. He worked in security at the Great Lakes Water Authority. He also Mm. worked as a pastor in a small church, the Logos Church. Oh, you're kidding. Yes, he was a pastor. Oh, brother. Okay. She gets in his car. What happened while she was in the car is, as of right now, unknown and disputed. Mm. What I'm going to do is I'm going to go into the current available evidence and testimonies. Okay. Because this is still in court, until we have a conviction, none of this has been proven on Mm -hmm. either side. Yep. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to tell the state's side, and then I'm going to tell the defense's side. Okay. So the state's evidence begins with a 911 call from a man named Eddie Neal Prince. Mm. He was a passerby who witnessed Stowe being shoved out of a car on McNichols and Brush. Jeez. He claims that he saw Stowe shoved out of the car, stumble and fall into the street, bleeding. Oh, God. He tells the 911 officer, they threw her out. Or the driver got out and snatched something out of her hand. I saw her. She was still breathing. Wow. Sergeant Heather Holcomb from the Detroit Police Department presented to the scene. She saw a spent bullet casing near Kelly and a sharp object in her hand. Mm-hmm. She was cold to the touch and not breathing. She died at the scene. What a thing for that caller to have to see. I know. It's- so awful at 6 a.m i imagine he was just trying to mind his own business Mm -hmm. eyewitness testimony is supported by security camera footage showing stowe being aggressively thrown out of a car someone grabbing something from her and then the car speeding off what did they grab do we find that out the guess is that it was money Okay. Or maybe like her phone, her phone or, something. or something. Nothing else was yeah. found on. At least nothing Nothing that I saw was found on her. My mm-hmm. speculation is that it was money and we'll kind of come to find out why. Okay. So the state also revealed that Weathers was a regular in the area. Mm. A fellow sex worker and a friend of Kelly named Kyra Butts would go on to describe him as a regular on that okay. drag. But Kyra said that... Weathers was someone that she began to refuse dates with Hmm. because he became known for getting rough with the girls and giving them the runaround when it came time to pay. Oh, that was going to be one of my questions. It's like, do we think that Kelly had had any previous interactions with him? We don't know if she did particularly, but Mm -hmm. it seems pretty clear that other uh, workers in the area did. Yeah, he was a known entity. He was a known entity, and he was a known rough entity. Got it. Okay. Part of the state's case would also be Weathers' own call to the police. Oh. And what did he have to say? So about an hour after the incident. Okay. So now we're at like seven. Weathers arrives at work. Mm -hmm. After he arrives at work, he takes his time and finally decides to call the police to report an attempted robbery. Hmm. He claims that he shot someone in self-defense. And he did not know what happened to that person. Hmm. He also says some very transphobic things that I won't repeat. Hmm. On the call? On the call, yes. Interesting. Okay. When they start to ask, who was it? Blah, blah, blah. Mm. Kind of thing. Gotcha. Okay. So that's what we know so far of the state's evidence. Got it. Okay. 
I'll put a couple of addendums, but they won't make sense until I go over Weathers. Mm. So Weathers' defense would change despite what that 911 call says. Yeah. Probably because my guess is he didn't realize that there was a witness or security camera footage. Yeah. Yeah. But his story goes like this. He claims that he was driving in the area after dropping his child off at school. He said he was there in that particular area because he liked the gas at a specific gas station where he would stop on the way to work. I see your face. There is no way that any school was going to be open for a child at 6 o'clock in the morning. There's no way. That, that, like, that on its face is just like a total fallacy. Like that... <laughs> You know, there are before school programs, but I have never heard of one starting that early. I didn't even think about that because I don't have kids, but that is a very good point. Yeah, there's no way. Like, my kid will have the earliest start time in town for her preschool at 730. And even before like, it's just before care is usually only like half an hour. Yeah, maybe 45 minutes. Yeah. But there's no, there's no way. No way. Unless he dropped that kid off. And they're, like, waiting on the lawn of the school. The only thing that I could think of, and this would be a reach, was when I was in high school in theater, because, shocker, guys, I was a theater kid, um, we would have very, very early rehearsals. Mm. But that was in high school. Yeah. And I don't think that his kids are in high school. Yeah. So... I feel like nobody is surprised that you were a theater kid. Nobody should be. <laughs> nobody should be. <laughs> if you saw my backdrop right now, it screams aged theater kid. <laughs> it really does. Sometimes I wonder what our listeners think that we look like. Mm-hmm. You know? I do too. Yeah. Listeners, doodle us. Yeah. What do, you, what do you think we look like? Who do you think we are, you know? Yeah. Anyway. Back jumping into what Weathers was doing. Weathers claimed that, so he was looking for this particular gas station after dropping off his daughter. He claimed in preliminary hearings that Stowe approached him and jumped in his car and demanded money. Mm. When he told her to get out of his car, she presented a sharp metal object and threatened him. Well, not so much threatened him. She threatened to cut his tires. Hmm. Which I thought was interesting. Yeah. Weathers then pulled out his forty caliber Glock, and Stowe started yelling, shoot me, shoot me, shoot me. What? Weathers then stated that he discharged his weapon on accident. Okay. He said, my intent was not to discharge my weapon. It went off by mistake. But also, in his 911 call, jumping back to that one, yeah, he describes that he got out of the car, and then she got out of the car, and then she went into her purse, and then that's when he shot her. Hmm. And that's when his gun accidentally, accidentally discharged. discharged. But he did tell the dispatcher that he had purposefully shot her in self-defense, hmm. so he's already contradicting himself. Like, within the frame of this phone call. Mm-hmm. Now, part of the preliminary hearings was also the ballistics guy, who I love you, ballistics guy. I love every ballistics yeah. guy. They're so interesting. It's such a, it's a really cool job. He testified, basically, that the type of weapon that he had, 
it is incredibly hard to accidentally miss to accidentally fire that weapon yeah that's what i was thinking i don't know much about guns but i feel like i know that about glocks Mm -hmm. like there's safeties and then you have to pull this and you have to be holding this Mm -hmm. and according to the expert witness it is very very hard to accidentally discharge glock yeah which is good it should be yes but is it should bad for mr weathers Mm -hmm. so then Weathers says that after she got out of the car he accidentally discharged his weapon that he sped off and didn't look back Mm. he says he waited to call the police because he just wanted to get back to work and getting to work was important to him Mm. thoughts more thoughts than you've already shared i again like this is a case that is ongoing Mm -hmm. right so um making assertions about guilt or innocence is obviously not okay at this point i just obviously you point to that inconsistency as a big big factor here and i was also just thinking that like when it comes to just the span of events there, the fact that he called at all feels like one of two things to me. Mm-hmm. Either like in a, somewhat of an authentic sense of guilt. Yeah. Like I need to, you know, at least make sure that somebody comes and gets her or or whatever. Um, or it's an early cover story, right? Yeah. Like you establish right away, like it was self-defense. And that's going to feel like kind of like your most authentic run of events. Like the first thing you say is going to be the realest thing you say, you know. But either one of those paths says two very different things about him and, you know, his kind of position like in this case, right? Yeah. The fact that he waited an hour to Mm -hmm. call it in. Yeah. Screams volumes to me. My other question is... Did he say anything on the record in court that was like inflammatory or transphobic? No, he was pretty well coached. Okay, gotcha. Because it's interesting to me too that that was part of the call. Yeah. Because that, I'll, I'll have to look up, are the transcripts of that call available? Yes, they are available. I can send you the okay. link if you want to. It's nothing outwardly inflammatory. It is a series of microaggressions and mm. unconscious biases. Gotcha. Okay, because I was wondering if it was like kind of an angry rant, no. like this so and so, such and such. It, yeah, yeah. It was it was a series of unconscious biases of using the wrong pronouns, and then mm. you know, okay. talking about voices and bodies, and oh, I let them close yeah. to my car because I thought it was a girl in trouble, and then gotcha. So then, was his composure in the space of that nine one one call pretty calm? It felt calm reading the transcripts, and that's all I can say. Interesting. Okay, that's interesting, too. Mm -hmm. And so that hour could have also been in large part about decompressing before making that call, right, if there was a degree of panic. I mean, given that he's a regular in the area, makes me wonder if he is not unacquainted with violence. Given the number of murders that were in that area, and I, I could not find the names of the other girls. I just didn't have the time like very straightforwardly i didn't have the time to look up all of it i don't know if all of those murders are solved yeah but i would be very interested to see if there are leads on other people but mm-hmm. again he's a known entity in a known violent entity in that neighborhood mm-hmm. yeah which just 
says something scary about him, kind of no matter how this case goes down, right? That he was a known entity at all, says something. I mean, obviously, and I'm going to jump around my notes a little bit, but his defense team has worked their damnedest to paint him as this kindly father and preacher. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, which which he very well could Mm -hmm. be in his day life, right? Like so many of these types of stories, like there's the the day life and the the night identity right and those can be two very different things yeah correct his defense attorney his name is david cripps really tried to present this picture of this is an innocent man trying to do a good deed that was viciously attacked and was only defending himself Mm -hmm. however preliminary hearings there was enough evidence to charge him with open murder ah The state of Michigan has this interesting quirk to its law Mm -hmm. that I'm kind of in love with. It's a good quirk. It is. Yeah, I like this quirk. So in the state of Michigan, you're not required to choose between first and second degree murder when issuing a complaint or even at trial. Mm -hmm. The prosecutor can charge what's called open murder, which is... It kind of smashes together first and second degree, and the jury gets to decide which degree is the most appropriate based on the evidence. Mm-hmm. Sometimes what that also can mean in Michigan is that the prosecution doesn't have to lay an official charge between first and second mm-hmm. uh, until partway through the, the trial period as well. Yeah. So it, it, it gives them the opening. It doesn't always mean it's going to go to a jury decision. What it often means is that in like the discovery process, especially that um, they can kind of decide, okay, this is first, this is second. Whereas in most cases you have to make a charge Mm -hmm. first or second or manslaughter or whatever. Which can be so hard and can change the entire course of a case. Mm -hmm. It can get an entire murder investigation thrown out if you make the wrong decision. Exactly. So this really just kind of puts the... I think it's a gesture towards trying to be as accurate as possible. I think it is, right? too. And I, I appreciate this mm-hmm. work. I kind of wish that every state had it. Yeah. So Weathers is currently being held on a $1 million bond. There was, and I want there to continue to be, so much pressure on this case. Yes. So preliminary hearings were in February 2019. And obviously quarantine has kind of put a delay on everything. I haven't seen Mm. a single update since the preliminary hearings. Interesting. Okay. And that's kind of where this case stands now. Mm. I want to read a couple of kind of quick quotes to kind of wrap things up and kind of where things stand. So I got to read the defense attorney's take on this case. I want to read you. uh, So a special prosecutor was assigned to the case because with this case comes the potential that crimes against trans folks will be included as hate crimes. Mm-hmm. So that's one of the big things we're dealing with here. Mm-hmm. So special prosecutor Jamie Horowitz made in her opening statement, she said she, Kelly, was disposable to him. He threw her out like trash and left her to die in the street. Wow. And that is where they are going with this case. Yeah. Um, what I want to do is I want to read a quote from Out Magazine's coverage of this case, and then I want to finish out with a quote from her mother, Jessica. Okay. So this is a quote from Out Magazine's coverage of this case that I think is kind of important to put all the pieces together. They said, in order to more fully contextualize Stowe's death, 
we have to understand and address the way black trans life is made disposable. What we are witnessing in this ongoing violence against black trans women is fatal manifestations of transphobia and massage noir. The majority of trans women being killed are living in poverty and face housing and job insecurity based on widespread discrimination practices in the workforce, all of which contribute to the context in which they face an increase in violence. Mm. And I think that kind of puts everything. Yeah, out it really there. does. Just like extremely succinctly. <laughs> but so that we don't lose Kelly in this story, I'm going to finish with this one from her mom. Yeah. Kelly's mother puts everything all together too, just with this one, she says. I want people to know that because she was transgender doesn't mean she was not loved, that she was not cared for. She has a family who cared about her, who loved her, and I want them to know that transgender ladies, expressly those of color, they're not just throwaways. People care about them. That's exactly right. That's beautiful. So I'm asking our followers to not only put a thought out there about Kelly and Amber and all of the other trans women that have been murdered but to keep an eye on this case and need to keep pressure on the state of michigan in this case yes please do michigan needs pressure <laughs> michigan needs pressure we all do Seriously. every state does yes yes especially in cases like these that involve marginalized populations mm-hmm. right we know that there's going to be you know more struggle than not mm-hmm. getting these cases to stay visible Mm -hmm. right and to stay like aggressively prosecuted so we have to maintain that level of of vigor and ferocity when it comes to you know pressure and yeah and i see a lot of these cases like they get so much press when they first happen and then by the time Mm -hmm. it gets to like sentencing or hearings then the pressure has died off and things get kind of get to slide out and i just yeah you know i want this to kind of stay on everybody's radar yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. To put it really succinctly, like Black Lives Matter all the time. time. <laughs> Not just when something happens and you get to make a Facebook post about it one time and then forget it, you know? And trans lives matter even outside of the month of June. Yeah, all the time. <laughs> all, all the time. The time. <laughs> yeah. So you going to segue us out of this one into uh, next week? You know, what's interesting is that there are some weird parallels from this week to next week that we did not necessarily plan for, because I know this was a a little bit of a segue into your, like away from your original schedule, not a segue, a departure from your original (laughs) schedule. Before I do that, I'm also just going to like pop in there just because this was on my mind too, because I was looking at, I wanted to see what this guy looked like. And I saw that he lived in Sterling Heights. Yes. And so I just want to like make the note that this man was driving you know, between 25 minutes to a half an hour, depending on the day, mm-hmm. to frequent the Palmer Park neighborhood. So he was not a neighborhood guy. Yes, he was not a local. Yeah, you, no, because you wouldn't take that route to get to where his job was. You just wouldn't do that. And nor would that be your logical route downtown yeah. either. It would be a really annoying drive. Mm-hmm. So so uh, next week we will be going to Indiana and Ohio. Oh. Possibly Wisconsin. Depends. And we are going to be taking a look at a profile of a serial killer, a notorious, terrifying killer who, reading several books about him in the last few weeks, has haunted my nightmares. So um, we'll be taking a look at um, a ruthless, ruthless serial killer 
um, who also preyed upon victims whose disappearances went underreported, which probably caused for many more victims than would have happened otherwise in this case. So we're talking double digit victims. We're talking like a pretty rough time span Mm -hmm. for sure between the beginning of this person's murder spree and the end of it. Yeah, so come back for that. It is <laughs> come back for terrifying. that. Lovely story. <laughs> it is really, really, really terrifying. And I will say that one of the books about him that I wouldn't recommend because it's just not that good anyway. But <laughs> the cover of the book is a dead, decapitated head from one of his victims, and I'm That's like tasteless. It was so tasteless, and the book itself is just not good anyway. But but this guy was a oh, he was a brutalizer, absolutely. So, yeah, come back for that. It's not going to be delightful, but it will be interesting. Yeah, so come back for that. Um, in the meantime, of course, we would love to hear from you on the socials mm-hmm. at Midwretched Everywhere. We are grateful to you guys. We're glad that you're still here. Yeah, I know you're especially waiting. Especially as we... Go ahead. Oh, go ahead. Go. No, I was just saying, especially as we approach our one-year anniversary, just to know that we've had, you know, what to us feels like a really successful year so far is just amazing yeah i'm pretty excited about everything that we have managed to do while we continue our regular lives and yeah seriously because we're busy people i don't want to be but i am i know i know Uh, so Um, tune in to hear more about my pumpkins definitely um (laughs) it is getting much harder for me to make it all the way through a recording without a bathroom break so my pregnancy is progressing (laughs) So, so tune um, in to hear yeah. about Tommy's pumpkin. That's right. My little pumpkin in there. <laughs> My little girl pumpkin. <gasps> Is it girl pumpkin? Yeah, another one. I get another one. Well, that's fun. Yeah. Yeah, so keep coming back. And, you know, we appreciate you. We appreciate your positive reviews. And we appreciate just the interaction. And we appreciate you being here. So thank you. Thank you. You're wonderful. On that note, I have to pee, uh, like, real bad. So... In all authenticity, when this call ends, I got a jet, and I promise I'll render the episode later. Just make sure you upload yep. it. Girl, I will. Love you. Just don't send me a bunch of passive-aggressive texts. They're not passive <laughs> I just struggle with language. <laughs> they're, they're, they're listeners. They are passive-aggressive. They are not. They're like, AF. hey, girl, can you upload this? How passive-aggressive is do, that? Do, 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 do. Bye, guys. Do, 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 do. I hate you. I'm going to stop recording now. You don't get in the outro. Eat cheese. We love you. You always got to go a size up with Aerie. I did the first time. Oh, well, you're pregnant. Yep. And they're blowing up. My taters are blowing up. <laughs> <laughs> There's. <laughs> <laughs>